we cross now to the BBC and Rob Hugh-Jones. Good morning, Rob. Good evening, and how are you? Very well, thank you. I've had quite a number of conversations in the past 25 minutes, so I'm delighted to be having a pause, entering the morning that we've already had, but we don't need to get too caught up in the time difference, and speaking with you. The start of the week for you and Ukraine. Last week was a big one for Russia and Ukraine with the war there being a year old on Friday. What does this week hold? Well, that's right. So last week, your listeners will probably remember that uh, Joe Biden made that surprise visit to Kiev, to Ukraine and to Poland and made various uh, highly supportive speeches uh, of Ukraine, of course. And uh, at the same time, President Putin in Moscow was giving his State of the Union address, uh, which usually lasts a couple of hours. And a fair bit of that was devoted to the war in Ukraine. So, you know, whichever side of the coin you're on, you would have got the the narrative, if you like, uh, and the kind of promotion from either of those two uh, world leaders on this massive story. Now, in terms of this week, uh, well, right now we have about 100 heads of state and foreign ministers gathering in Geneva, Switzerland, for a long meeting of the United Nations Human Rights Council. This actually goes on for five weeks, this session, believe it or not. Um, Though they, of course, foreign leaders and so on, foreign ministers won't be there for all of that. But they'll be there for the beginning, and that will focus on uh, Russia's actions in Ukraine for sure. And several states have already said they will Uh, call for an extension of the United Nations mandate to investigate atrocities there. And I should say there are uh, allegations of atrocities on both sides. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. The other thing that caught my eye was uh, over the weekend, what's being said in America, because there's been, uh, on the one hand, we've seen this kind of a suggestion of a peace plan by China. And of course, China is sort of allied to Russia, though it's trying to be... uh, It's trying to be impartial, neutral in this war, although that's raising some eyebrows in Western capitals who don't necessarily trust China's position on that. But if you if you watch what two top U.S. officials said over the weekend, one of them, the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, told CNN that there was no indication that China will provide lethal aid to Russia. That's a hot button issue at the moment. But in a separate interview, the CIA director, William Burns, told CBS that he's confident that China is considering providing Moscow with that kind of lethal equipment. And that would be, say, the Americans a real game changer uh, if China were to do that. So that's a really interesting one to watch. You know, does China promote peace and try to become a sort of interlocutor, uh, a mediator in all of this? Uh, Is it seen to be independent enough to do that? And at the same time, is there some is there some kind of backdoor provision for Russia? Uh, Question mark, question mark. So we're watching all of that this week. But, you know, once again, another news rich week for Ukraine should just say on Tuesday, uh, lawmakers in Finland are voting on whether to join NATO. And we expect that to pass uh, and your listeners will know that Finland and which shares, by the way, a huge land border with Russia uh, and Sweden uh, are poised to join NATO and thereby expand NATO exactly what President Putin did not want. So we, we're watching out for that on Tuesday as well. Goodness. Yes. Well, yes. That's hmm. OK. Rob, there's been a case in Southeast Asia of a young girl dying of bird flu. What's being said about that case and how significant is it? Well, we're just keeping an eye on that because, you know, in the wake of 
COVID, I think uh, health professionals all over the world naturally are more, you know, they're, they're perhaps even more alert than they were before to any kind of future pandemic. Just because we've had COVID, there's no reason to uh, imagine that another pandemic may be, you know, many, many years away. And right now we've got um, this very contagious strain of H, uh, H5N1, bird flu, infecting birds all over the world. And in fact, the World Health Organization says some 200 million birds have had to be culled um, and some 15 million domestic birds, including poultry, have died from the disease already. So this is a really virulent strain. It's affecting birds in many, many parts of the world. Uh, here in Britain, we know that the uh, strain has uh, has been transferred to some mammals like otters and foxes and so on. And now we have this case in Cambodia of a young girl, uh, tragically an 11-year-old girl uh, dying of uh, H, uh, H5N1. And importantly, her father testing positive as well. So of course, the question is, has there been any kind of human to human transmission here? And that's what the WHO and others are investigating. I should just say this, you know, bird flu is not unknown in humans. It does happen, particularly uh, in humans that have close relationship with, you know, look, you know, dealing with poultry uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, people can can get this from kind of sick birds and so on. But because of this virulent strain uh, that is uh, so predominant at the moment uh, uh, and in the wake of COVID, you know, they are watching this very carefully just to make sure uh, that we are right on top of it and know and, and spot it immediately and do something about it. Yes. Okay, well, staying with the UK, tidal power, I love this heading. The UK has a long coastline and now there are plans to use tides and currents to generate renewable energy there. What's happening? Well, I don't know what the length of the coastline of New Zealand is, but here in Britain, you know, we're, we're islands in the North Atlantic, Irish Sea, North Sea, English Channel. But if you look at uh, all of our coastline, the, the mapping agency, the Ordnance Survey says we have 20,000 miles of coastline. And, you know, Britain, like so many other communities, particularly coastal communities around the world, are trying to meet their emissions targets. Uh, they have net zero targets and so on. And therefore, they want to uh, produce and generate more renewable energy uh, locally. Um, and so Britain is very much looking to the water for this. And if you fly in, as I did the other day into London from the east, you will see loads and loads, row after row of wind farms. These are uh, turbines that are tethered to the sea floor. There's also quite a lot of floating wind turbines off the British coast. They push them out further where it's windier and they get more energy as a result. But what's also going on is this interesting business of tidal energy. So if you go to the southwest, some of your listeners might know the Bristol Channel, the Seven Estuary, Bristol, Cardiff, Swansea. If you go to that kind of area uh, in Swansea, they, uh, they have drawn up plans to build a great big uh, tidal lagoon in Swansea Bay that would be essentially a huge wall with turbines in it. When the tide comes in, those turbines turn and when it goes out, the turbines turn and that creates renewable energy. And importantly, that area, believe it or not, has the second highest uh, tidal range in the world after eastern Canada. So when the tide comes in, when the tide goes out, the difference is enormous. And that's what they're trying to exploit. So it's kind of interesting looking uh, at Britain at the moment, uh, but also co coastal communities all over the world and 
considering, you know, how much effort is now going into the exploitation of the seas in terms of uh, generating uh, renewable energy in some way. And in Swansea, it's very interesting because they're pulling that renewable energy uh, on uh, uh, on land. And then the idea is to store it in massive great big battery farms. And then for the community, for the city of Swansea to then use that energy itself and thereby achieve some energy security, which, of course, we all know is a major hot button issue at the moment. How fascinating. I've, I've looked it up. New Zealand's coastline is 15,000 kilometres in length. Wikipedia says it's the ninth longest in the world. But isn't that well, fascinating? Yeah, there we go. But I'm loving this uh, reference to the big difference between the tide coming in and going out and just how that, how useful that can be. And then, well, of course, the storage, at, yeah. right? Amazing. That's right. And the storage, exactly. So, you know, the, the, the issue with the renewable energy has always been it's got to be used very rapidly. Um, but actually, if you're storing it in batteries and those batteries are fed with further renewable energy, you know, several times a day, because we know when the tides happen, uh, then that energy is, is effectively stored there and can get used kind of all the time. And that's that's what they're planning. And, you know, the idea is to is to. In Swansea, the idea is to uh, power factories and educational establishments and entertainment venues, uh, even uh, energy hubs that will fire up, uh, you know, electric cars and so on. So it's a very interesting kind of integrated plan they have there. Uh, and we're looking out for a, for a formal planning application any time now. Mm, fascinating. Now, today in the UK, the Prime Minister's meeting with the head of the European Commission, and this is a major story in Britain. Why is that, Rob? Yes, I wouldn't necessarily keep you in the UK um, since we look at global stories, but this is quite a big one, actually, because uh, your listeners will remember that the UK formally left the European Union, Brexit, in 2020. And, uh, and at the time, uh, the politicians negotiated with the European Union for something called the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's a very complicated thing, this. But essentially, it boils down to there being a border on the island of Ireland, a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the European Union still. And uh, of course, what you would normally do is you'd have border checks along that border because Northern Ireland is not in the European Union and Ireland is. So any any goods that went south across that border would need to be checked because they're entering into the European Union and they, of course, are very protective of their uh, food standards and so on. However, because of Northern Ireland's history, that would have been a very politically sensitive thing to do, uh, would have upset the balance essentially in Northern Ireland could have led to further violence and trouble. So they were not prepared to put a hard border, as, 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 they, as they call it, um, there. And instead, the Northern Ireland Protocol was a sort of fix job to have a border running down the Irish Sea between England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland and Ireland, essentially. And that means that if you export some food, for example, from Scotland, into Northern Ireland, it is now checked in Northern Ireland ports. Effectively, there's a border running down that northern, uh, that, that uh, Irish Sea. So anyway, it's very complicated, but this has been a, a huge sensitive issue in this country. It's been a big bone of contention between Britain and the European Union, and it's caused all kinds of upset and all sorts of trading 
blocks and obstacles in, in Northern Ireland in particular. It's also led to a uh, dissolution of power sharing in Northern Ireland. So there is no local government really operating Northern Ireland. There hasn't been for some time because of this issue. And that's why Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, meeting with the head of the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen, in Windsor today, just west of London. That's why this meeting is so important and they are, it's expected, uh, they will announce some kind of a, an agreement. Uh, and that really is a, a major part of the Brexit jigsaw puzzle um, that we may see uh, and the indications are that we will today or in the coming days. And that's why it's so significant. And is there any, I mean, what are punters or pundits saying could come from this meeting in terms of a decision? Well, they think there will be some kind of a, an agreement um, and that will put you know, relations between Britain and the European Union on a far better uh, pegging. Uh, but it will also be a a um, victory for the Prime Minister. Remember, Rishi Sunak's only been in post for a couple of months and we had such turbulence here in Britain uh, politically last year. And he has now really, uh, uh, you know, decided that this is a very important uh, issue to deal with personally. And he's, it's become a kind of signature issue for him. A lot's riding on that. Uh, and so if he can actually get this across the line and establish much better relationships with Brussels and with the EU and restore some kind of power sharing government in Northern Ireland, uh, which makes that uh, area a lot more stable. And of course, stability is a huge issue in Northern Ireland historically. If he can achieve all of that, uh, then that will be a, a, essentially a landmark achievement in his administration and his time as prime minister. So that's why it's all significant here. And you can bet you know, it, it will be on tomorrow morning's newspapers, for example, if, if anyone still reads papers, it will be front page news. You can be certain Rishi Sunak, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, uh, sitting together at Windsor and uh, smiling at one another. You can expect that front page of pretty much all of our papers tomorrow if this goes ahead. A pleasure speaking with you this morning, Rob Hugh-Jones. Thank you so much for these insights. It's a big news week ahead. We say this every week, but every week they seem to get bigger. So thank you so much and looking forward to speaking with you or your team next week. Yeah, thanks very much. Have a great week. Thank you.